This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by the Medical Science Liaison Division of Bard Medical, where science meets education. We are dedicated to targeted temperature management and bringing academia from around the world to deliver great expertise and proven knowledge base for future global advancements. Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Margaret Parker. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Benjamin Abella, Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine and Vice Chair of Research in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is with us today to talk about his Congress presentation titled, Overall Hypothermia Update, presented at the 45th Critical Care Congress as part of the Society's Current Concepts in Adult Critical Care pre-course. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Abella. Well, thank you. It's good to be with you. Ben, would you tell us how you got interested in hypothermia and cardiac arrest as a field of study? Sure. When I was a resident some time ago, uh, it became immediately apparent to me that cardiac arrest was a big problem with both poor survival and poor neurologic outcomes, and it really made an impression. Through additional training and fellowship and some time doing research, uh, I decided to get more involved in cardiac arrest as a problem that needed work. And around the same time, in 2002, uh, we saw the publication of two large landmark clinical trials that both supported the use of hypothermia as a treatment for neurologic damage following cardiac arrest, and that was very exciting for me. Um, the timing was good. I was starting my career. These trials came out, and I said, gosh, I, I'd love to bring this to my hospital. So we actually started we were one of the first hospitals to start a post-arrest temperature management program uh, in 2002 and 2003, and my research followed from there. Hypothermia is a quite broad topic. So how did you go into deciding what to put in an overall update on hypothermia? Yeah, it is quite a broad topic. And, and of course, um, uh, listeners are probably well aware there's both hypothermia that happens naturally, that is to say environmental hypothermia, and then hypothermia that we use as a treatment. And all of my work discussion and the discussion today will focus, of course, on hypothermia as a treatment as opposed to environmental hypothermia. And even using hypothermia as a treatment is a fairly broad topic. There have been explorations of the use of hypothermia, or I should speak more broadly, temperature management, which could include just aggressive normothermia. The use of temperature management has been used in subarachnoid, hemorrhage, traumatic brain injury. It has been explored for myocardial infarction. There's even been some discussions of the use of temperature management for sepsis and for cardiac arrest. And so, so even the use of temperature is a fairly broad topic. All of my work and also the best clinical evidence for temperature management all reside in the realm of cardiac arrest and post-arrest care, although certainly there is a growing interest, uh, not yet clinically proven, for the use of temperature management in stroke, myocardial infarction, and other conditions. Do you think uh, people listening today will come away with any surprises about the state of the art in hypothermia? Well, uh, probably most of the listeners today are aware of an ongoing controversy about what is the appropriate target temperature for patients after cardiac arrest, and, and hopefully they'll come away with perhaps a little bit more of an understanding of, of where the field currently is at and, and what are some of the reasons one might uh, settle on a certain target temperature. Uh, hopefully that'll be useful for folks um, in their clinical practice. There are a lot of uh, hypothermia guidelines out there recently. Can you kind of summarize what's out there for guidelines? 
Yes, um, this is a timely discussion because the uh, American Heart Association just released the Every Five Years update on resuscitation. So in 2010 was the last one, and then now 2015 in October, the new guidelines were released. So they're only a few months old. And the new guidelines uh, regarding post-arrest care have been fleshed out in a number of important ways. But perhaps the most important to get across early in this interview is they have come across stating that temperature management is absolutely required for patients following cardiac arrest in the range of 32 to 36 degrees Celsius. Now, they're not suggesting it's okay for patients to uh, wander between that temperature range on an individual basis, but rather they suggest that you pick a temperature and stick with it. But the temperature target you pick can be within the range of 32 to 36, depending on uh, specific patient factors, and we can certainly get more into that. The other important thing to note is that the guidelines uh, in 2015 have been much more clear in laying out other critical care aspects of managing post-arrest patients. For example, uh, they strongly urge the consideration of cardiac catheterization for appropriate out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients. They also have reinforced the notion that one should not be quick to neuroprognosticate patients following cardiac arrest based on clinical grounds. And this, I think, for critical care providers is one of the most important things to reinforce. Plenty of evidence has shown that patients following cardiac arrest can have clinical evidence of severe brain injury, that is, blown and dilated pupils, no gag response, and other brainstem reflex um, abnormalities, and they are meaningless with regard to neuroprognostication for at least 72 hours. So uh, I'm constantly getting phone calls from um, critical care folks who say, we're thinking of withdrawing, it's day two post-arrest because this patient has blown and dilated pupils, and I tell them that that would be an incorrect move. And the guidelines and the clinical evidence are quite clear that anoxic encephalopathy makes the clinical exam very confusing for the first few days following arrest, and it really cannot be relied upon. So that's a very important aspect of the new guidelines as well. Is that with or without therapeutic hypothermia? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so the understanding is, uh, at least the clinical evidence base, would suggest 72 hours following arrest without hypothermia. With hypothermia, the guidelines are less clear because the clinical evidence is less clear. Most hospital experts seem to suggest, uh, seem to believe that it would be 72 hours following rewarming from hypothermia, which is really, of course, a major operational challenge because this would mean that patients are sort of locked down in the ICU for four or five days, um, enough to make many a bean counter a grumble. But this is sort of the state of the art and the challenge we face. You know, it's very important to point out that this doesn't mean you, you are forbidden from withdrawal of care. Uh, this is often misunderstood. If family proxies show up and say our loved one never would have wanted this, and, uh, uh, you know, here's the DNR orders that you guys failed to see and, and we want care withdrawn, you, certainly that's allowable. The guidelines are just clear on the fact that Withdrawal based on clinical exam is the inappropriate move, but, but certainly one can withdraw for other reasons, more abundant status, otherwise uh, family wishes, etc. I think it's well recognized that a lot of patients who have had cardiac arrest are not treated with targeted temperature management. What are the barriers to implementation of targeted temperature management? You're quite right. Even in 2016, um, many hospitals are slow to adopt this therapy. And moreover, even the ones who claim to have adopted it do so with variable uh, implementation success and variable quality. And, and I think 
in a sense, this just speaks to a larger issue. Uh, you know, there have been a number of studies looking at the timeline to implementation of new treatments in medicine, and uh, uh, we're uh, constantly struck by how long that timeline is. Experts in the field of knowledge translation have suggested that, in general, when a new important therapy comes online, uh, it can take up to 15 years uh, for broad implementation. And I'm not an expert in implementation science. It saddens me to think that we as a medical community are this slow to implement new therapies. Uh, and there may be a variety of reasons for this. Certainly one of the major barriers to implementation is the perceived complexity of this therapy. Patients uh, require pharmacologic adjuncts to cooling. Uh, there's a requirement for commercial cooling equipment. Certainly it requires several days of pre-intensive care. It is generally believed that um, for the first 24 to 48 hours post-arrest, during a TTM protocol, one should have one-to-one -one nursing to patient care, which is, of course, economically and operationally challenging for many places. So for a variety of reasons, I think hospitals and critical care settings have shied away from even dealing with this at all. That said, the evidence is pretty strong that temperature management works and can save lives. There are, to be sure, other challenges as well. The evidence base for using temperature management for PEA arrest, that is non-shockable arrest, as well as for using it for in-hospital arrest, is much uh, less well-developed, and it's harder to argue that it's a requirement. And so I think those who wish to avoid the discussion of temperature management point to that and say, well, the evidence base is not so clear. Indeed, the evidence base is clear for shockable rhythms and out-of-hospital arrests, but admittedly, it is much less clear for in-hospital arrest, and it would be outside of uh, a reason for me to argue that all in-hospital arrests require uh, temperature management, but this wouldn't be a reason not to at least have a protocol and consider it for out-of-hospital patients and select in-hospital patients. What advice do you have for hospitals and ICUs who are trying to implement targeted temperature management protocols? Yeah, I, I think that um, the first thing is to say the evidence is there and, and this should be part of every ICU's armamentarium. Or if a decision is made that it's not appropriate for, for an ICU for whatever reason, there has to be a protocol for rapidly transferring these patients to facilities that can offer it. So, for example, if um, uh, listeners uh, represent an ICU that's at a small community hospital that does not have a 24-7 cath lab, um, since cardiac cath is an important component of post-arrest care, it would not be unreasonable for a small ICU, a small hospital like that, to consider building a transfer protocol where they do not definitively care for these patients, but rather quickly move them to larger hospitals for care. So, so there are some options to be considered. As far as seeking out resources and, and learning about this, hopefully this podcast will help a little bit, but I would also recommend um, seeking out online resources that exist. For example, the new guidelines in 2015 are available uh, online for free. Uh, the journal Circulation has posted these, and they have a lot more explicit details now on building a protocol and what aspects are important. I also would encourage listeners to come to our website at the University of Pennsylvania Center for Resuscitation Science and full disclosure. I, I get no proceeds from people clicking on our links, and there's no ads at all, so this is, a, this is a freebie. But we have compiled a number of protocols for temperature management from a number of hospitals. Uh, they're available for perusal and evaluation. We have other toolkits available as well. So if one Googles or uses another web browser of your choice, uh, Center for Resuscitation Science, the good uh, web-savvy person can find our site pretty easily. And we have a lot of information there on, on post-rest care and building protocols.
You alluded earlier to patient factors that help determine what the temperature goal um, might be. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. And and this is really one of the cutting-edge, challenging areas of the field, because by no means is this field uh, settled yet. There's a lot yet to be figured out. One of them is the best target temperature. You know, maybe this is a trend in other areas of critical care as well, this notion of precision medicine or tailored medicine. So much of what we do um, historically has been one size fits all, but we're gaining in our sophistication and understanding that specific patients may need specific targets for different therapies. And this, this doesn't just apply for cooling. But in the case of cooling, precision medicine or tailored uh, therapy very much applies. So for example, it seems pretty clear that 33 and 36 degrees of temperature targets in a large recent randomized trial out of Europe were equivalent. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're all equivalent at an individual patient basis, but it does mean that one would not be wrong in managing someone's temperature at 36. Who might one choose 36 to manage post-rest temperature? Well, the traditional approach, cooling to 33 degrees Celsius, which has been our approach over the last decade, 33 um, is uh, associated with increased coagulopathy and increased risk of bleeding. That risk is small, to be sure, but it exists. And so if someone comes into my hospital post-arrest, having had a recent uh, history of a big GI bleed, for example, or is actively GI bleeding, we might consider choosing 36 as a temperature target. If someone came in um, following an out-of-hospital ventricular fibrillation arrest with no history of bleeding, no risks for bleeding, we would choose 33. So that's just an example of how one might go through this uh, algorithm. Um, The other patient you might consider 36 would be someone who's so unstable and, and moribund that the consideration would be that temperature low or it might just add one more complexity to patient care. That would not be unreasonable. But in general, uh, most experts across the United States have remained steadfast in picking 33 as a target temperature for out-of-hospital ventricular fibrillation arrest. So there's a sense that a little bit cooler is probably better for the brain? That's right, that there may be a dose effect. Now, some people listening might disagree, and I would agree with them, Um, that the evidence for this is poor. There's a a large host of animal data supportive of the dose effect of lowered temperature, but it is true that the clinical data supporting lower temperatures is weak. What is clear from this recent trial I alluded to comparing 33 versus 36 is that temperature management works. The um, 36-degree arm in the recent trial had a much higher survival rate than prior arms or concurrent patients in other studies that received no temperature management. And so certainly some of the benefit of this post-arrest temperature management is just aggressive fever avoidance, as well as protocolized care. Patients in the 36-degree arm of the recent trial also uh, had delayed withdrawal. They had uh, aggressive consideration of cardiac catheterization. They had aggressive management of hemodynamics. So what's becoming clear is that the right approach to post-arrest care is a bundled approach, where it's not just an issue of temperature management, but temperature management combined with other uh, cutting-edge approaches. I think you made an important point that aggressive avoidance of fever is important. The recent pediatric trial uh, didn't demonstrate a benefit with lower temperature, but both groups strictly avoided fever, and I think it's clear that fever is bad. 
That's right. That's right. Fever is clearly bad for the injured brain, and this has been shown experimentally. It's been shown clinically time and time again. And those who say, well, gosh, I'm not going to uh, have a TTM protocol, but I'll just be really good about rectal Tylenol in these patients, they would be uh, advised to consider again because the evidence is fairly clear that neurogenic fever, that is brainstem-mediated fevers following major brain injuries such as cardiac arrest, are really difficult to control pharmacologically. Um, now, that isn't to say in future we might have better pharmacologic approaches, but in the current state of the art, uh, a Tylenol just doesn't cut it. And temperature uh, modulation via these commercially available uh, devices is the way to go, or at least as best we can tell. Because every time a patient spikes, say, to 102 or 103 following arrest, we're losing neurons or, and we're increasing brain injury. What about targeted temperature management after traumatic brain injury? Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, yeah. And, and notice I've largely avoided the other disease states. Um, that's part because I, I know less about them. My, my research is, is primarily on cardiac arrest, but also it's fair to say the evidence base is much weaker for these other diseases. It's definitely more in the realm of experimental at this point. Studies uh, looking at cooling for traumatic brain injury have been negative, although animal studies have been positive. There's also been uh, some increasing data supporting the notion of cooling for stroke, which is very exciting because we have so few therapies for stroke patients, although that, of course, is changing as well. And then there's some evidence that cooling may be useful for MI. So, so there are disease states where cooling is potentially an option. I wouldn't go rushing to treat anyone yet with it. There's, there's not been a proper definitive randomized trial that, that has conclusively shown this for any of these diseases. But, but I would stay tuned. I think in the next few years, we will learn a lot more about temperature management, specifically in stroke, and, and perhaps also in, uh, in other diseases. I, I think the traumatic brain injury story is going to be more difficult because studies have been negative. It largely may be an issue of timing and dose that need to be worked out. So there's a lot more work to be done there. Uh, the other reason why it's hard to study, of course, is traumatic brain injury comes in some different flavors, uh, uh, hard to define subpopulations, harder to define outcomes in many cases. So it's just a tougher research challenge, uh, somewhat easier in stroke. Anyway, so, so there's much to be learned. Um, but I think the critical care community should keep their eye on temperature management because I think in the next few years, there's going to be all sorts of exciting developments uh, and broadening of this therapy. What kind of new things do you see coming down the road, or at least what's being investigated? Yeah, so um, one of the things that's being looked at is other pharmacologic adjuncts to cooling um, following cardiac arrest. And I think this is going to be an exciting area in the near future. There are some data that have been presented at research meetings, um, largely from the animal lab, admittedly, using um, nitric oxide as a therapeutic agent potentially following arrest. Um, and other work that, uh, again, in animals presented at national meetings, so this is publicly uh, available information, using a, a, a inhaled gas, xenon, for potential therapy following cardiac arrest. Um, there's other interest in other anesthesia agents um, that may uh, mitigate brain injury and other antioxidants. So I actually think in the next few years we're going to see a lot of interest in pharmacology combined uh, with temperature management following arrest. In addition, I think there will be new approaches to temperature management that involve a more rapid onset of temperature uh, control, uh, and we'll see if that matters in some of these diseases like traumatic brain injury. That lays the ground for some really interesting stuff coming down the road. Mm -hmm. Do you have any final comments you'd like to make? 
Well, yeah, I think the topic of temperature management remains controversial to some, although we're getting at least some resolution now on the basic parameters for cardiac arrest care. I think this is an important ongoing discussion in part because cardiac arrest remains such a devilishly difficult problem. Um, It's important to underscore the fact that over 300,000 people in the United States each year suffer cardiac arrest. That's over 1,000 a day. And survival rates um, in most communities remain less than 10%. They're climbing. And and it's important to note that in some communities that have really well-developed chains of survival, survival to hospital discharge is now approaching 20%. So it shows us that we can do better. We can make progress on this disease if we align a number of things, including bystander CPR, automatic external defibrillator programs, and excellent post-arrest hospital-based care. I think your point that it's not just the temperature management, but it's the whole bundle of detailed critical care following cardiac arrest is critical to improving outcomes in this field. Yes, I think that's right. That's right. Well, thank you very much for uh, talking with us today, Dr. Abella. It's been really interesting, and I'm sure the readers will learn a lot from your thoughts. Terrific. Well, my pleasure. We have been talking today with Dr. Benjamin Abella from the University of Pennsylvania about hypothermia following cardiac arrest and in other clinical settings. Thank you for joining us today. This concludes another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Margaret Parker. This SCCM iCritical Care podcast is sponsored by the Medical Science Liaison Division of Bard Medical where science meets education. We are dedicated to targeted temperature management and bringing academia from around the world to deliver great expertise and proven knowledge base for future global advancements. Margaret Parker, MD, MCCM, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Parker is professor of pediatrics at Stony Brook University in New York and is the director of the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Stony Brook Children's Hospital. A former president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, Dr. Parker is involved in quality improvement and standardization of care in the pediatric ICU, as well as resident education. Her clinical interests include severe sepsis and septic shock in children. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.